Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to explore this new phase of life with you all. So, over the past few years, I have gained a whole new perspective on life, and I've realized that life is too short to not be enjoying yourself while doing great things. So, come along with me as I explore this new lens through fitness, photography, reading, traveling, cannabis, and much more. Looking forward to the journey, guys. And remember, only positivity. Hello and good morning, everyone. Only positivity here. I have my coffee with me, ready to kick off podcast number 23 on this playlist that I'm looking to launch called Elevated Thoughts. Now, before diving into the book and everything like that, let's go ahead and start with the level set. So, as I endeavor upon pursuing knowledge and life experience in this next phase of life through fitness, photography, traveling, you know, many more things, um, one habit that I've really formed is reading. So this podcast essentially goes through some of the books I've been reading as of late, um, taking those lessons learned and applying them to experiences in my life. So, um, you know, before going into part three of uh, the crime book by Big Ideas Simply Explained, let's go ahead and start uh, with the, the, the story for today. So um, this story happened about like 10 years ago or so, um, you know, at just one of my buddy's house, um, you know, I was still in, I was still in high school, maybe early college. And, um, you know, I used to hang out with a, a different group of friends. And one thing we used to do is play a lot of card games, right? And um, for those of you that recognize the game Mafia, that was a, a, one of the main games we used to play back in the day. And it was really fun. Um, for those of you that don't know, um, it's a game where, um, you kind of have to act things out, right? Uh, there's a narrator. The I believe the king is the cop. Um, the jack is the mafia. And there's also a doctor in there somewhere as well. I may have botched the rules just now. But essentially, you learn a lot about people because, you know, you got to put people on trial. You accuse people of murder and things like that. And people have to defend themselves um, in front of the jury, right? So you learn a lot about people. And it really uh, makes the most out of the game when you're animated about it. So, you know, every now and then there'd be, um, you know, a friend of a friend would come. So maybe someone we didn't really know, uh, but, you know, we're very welcoming and, you know, want to include everyone in the game. So, you know, this one particular evening we had like a potluck and um, it might have been around Thanksgiving. I don't know. But uh, we we all brought a, a dish or appetizer, or an entree. Right. Um, and then there's a big group of people there. Some people I never met. But, you know, we're playing mafia. We're gonna have a good time. So, you know, flash forward, like midway through the game, I, um, I, I myself and this other kid um, are put on trial and we're accused of murder, right? So um, at that point, we both have to defend ourselves, right? We have like a minute or two to defend ourselves. And, um, you know, I go, I, I do my thing. And I, I like to be very animated throughout this game. Um, and then we have like a, another couple of minutes to kind of do like a, I don't know if it's a cross-examine, but we're having like a debate, right? So... This particular kid had brought some um, some enchiladas to the party, right? And, you know, one argument that I used um, as to, like, you know, vote him off of the game was, like, hey, man, dude, like, look at him. He he came in today looking super sketchy with those enchiladas in his hand, right? And, you know, that's not even relevant. That's not a valid point of argument. It's just a joke, right? We're messing around. So something about what I said must have really irritated this guy. So um, out of nowhere, he gets super serious. He's like, hey, dude what the hell, man? Like, what, what's wrong with you? And I go, 
wait, what? what? I don't know if he was joking or not, you know? And then um, I remember this distinctly because it was a weird diss. He goes, you're trash, man. You're a trash person. And then I, I just remember it distinctly because he called me trash. And I was like, okay, dude, like, I'm sorry. Um, and then, you know, my friends that you know, whoever's friend he was there, um, they go up and dude, they're like, dude, stop. No, no, that's okay. He was just joking. He's just joking. And this guy got all riled up about it. And I was like, okay. So definitely made the vibe weird the rest of the evening. But all I said was he looked sketchy bringing in those enchiladas. So, you know, just a joke. But, you know, I, it, it's just funny, right? Like we're playing a card game um, and things got out of hand super quickly. I guess we were teasing each other, whatever. But, um, yeah, I just remember being called trash, so whatever about, um, whatever, okay? So we'll go ahead and move on um, from that. So um, coming back to the book uh, for today, we're going to go through uh, the crime book, uh, part three by Big Ideas, um, Simply Explain. So, you know, what's interesting is, um, you know, as I've gone through this book, it gives me a different perspective on crime itself. And, you know, crime is uh, is a real reaction to people's economic situations um, and political policy at the time. Um, a lot of times we think, you know, crime is just are just one offs, but you can definitely see downward streams based on economic policy and things like that. Um, or it can be a reaction right to oppression or poverty. So uh, as societies have become more evolved, technology comes into place. The police force has also had to catch up. So you see the evolution of crime in this book as well. So, um, I believe last week um, we went through con artists, so this week we'll go through white-collar crimes. And, you know, I don't have too many stories on this one. I think I picked two, um, mainly because white-collar crimes, um, I don't know if this is right to say, they're a little bit boring to me. So, um, yeah, I just kind of breezed over this one, but there's still a, a couple of good stories within. So, the, f the first story we're going to go through is the story of uh, Charles Ponzi, and that might that term might sound familiar um, in relation to um, the Ponzi scheme, which actually originated from this story. So the pyramid scheme, right? So um, this took place between 1903 and 1920, uh, primarily in Boston, Massachusetts, but um, a few other locations as well. So um, a couple things to note at the start. So Ponzi, Charles Ponzi, um, he he didn't start his career off with the idea of conning people in mind, so it seems. So he arrived, um, he was 21 years old uh, in the United States uh, as an Italian immigrant in 1903. So um, the book says he arrived with just $2.50 in his pocket, right? So meager means um, definitely set up for a tough life in America. So, you know... You know, coming back to to reality for a second, right? So a lot of immigrants, um, they come to this country uh, back in the early 1900s, you know, through Ellis Island. And, you know, they really wanted to make a name for themselves here, right? Their legacy was um, very important to them as they came to America. And family name meant a lot as well back then, right? Carrying on the family name. Um, where, you know, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I don't know if... if, if if that is, you know, important to me as a legacy, but, you know, it definitely seems like a solid theme throughout the immigrant population coming to um, America and settling. So anyway, so Charles Ponzi was broke, so he's determined to make a name for himself, um, get some wealth, and get things moving, right? So he picked up English really, really quickly, right? He was an Italian immigrant, only spoke Italian, picked up English super fast, super quick. So, um, Another theme of what we saw with criminals in terms of Victor Lustig, right, um, conning people into buying 
um, the Eiffel Tower for scrap metal. He picked up a bunch of uh, European languages immediately or quickly, right? Um, so you see these themes of, you know, I guess sociopaths being pathological, um, adapting to their environments and things like that. Um, so he also moved around the East Coast a little bit, Charles Ponzi, and um, he he took up various jobs there. And um, additionally, he was a waiter and he became a translator. So he was really able to, you know, adapt, like I said, to his environment. Um, he moved to Montreal in 1907 and got a job at a bank. And he quickly became um, a bank manager there, right? So like I said, in being able to embed himself in the environment and succeed. Um, so, you know, just based on what I'm saying here, you can tell that Charles Ponzi really does have ambitions. And as you look closer, um, you can tell that he had very, very high aspirations. So when he when he becomes that bank manager, um, I believe this is his first instance of crime. So um, the bank he worked at in Montreal failed. And then Ponzi, right, became desperate, really looking for a way to make ends meet. And, you know, when you put someone in a desperate circumstance, there's really no telling what they're going to resort to uh, to make ends meet. So, like I said, crime is a reaction to an economic circumstance. And, you know, I don't know Charles Ponzi, I didn't know him, but I'm sure he wasn't just trying to break the law for the sake of breaking the law at first. Um, he was probably just looking for a way to survive. So what he did was he wrote himself a forged check um, just to get enough funds to go back to the United States. And um, he was caught and he spent three years in jail. Now, jail is going to change someone, right? So he spent a significant amount of time there. Um, and it just seems like he's having a tough time of it ever since he arrived in North America. And, you know, in my earlier podcast, I talk about how, you know, the American dream is not always what it seems, right? People come here, um, they, they think they're going to have the, the best life ever, but it can often be tough as well. So Charles Ponzi moves to Atlanta, and he spends another two years in prison for smuggling immigrants into the country. So now, um, this guy who had high aspirations when he came at 21 years old, right, to make a, a name for himself in America, has spent um, five years in jail um, and has been on the brink of bankruptcy probably multiple times, right? So, um, like I said, he... It seems like uh, these events led him to become this con artist or to become uh, this white-collar criminal. So once he got released from prison in Atlanta, he returned to Boston and he got married in 1918. So he worked some odd jobs there and tried out some new ventures, but they failed. And then he became desperate again. So you're right, this guy's down on his luck. So um, at some point, the, the bulk of the story comes in here. So Charles Ponzi receives a letter from Spain, um, and this is where the Ponzi scheme originates. So um, at that time, right, in 1918, uh, there, was a, there was a method to send international postage, and um, it was called an international reply coupon, so somewhat of a stamp, right? Um, so what Ponzi realized shortly was that um, he could buy stamps from Italy and sell them for a profit in America, there was a price discrepancy, right? Uh, so that's called arbitrage, and you can tell this guy's looking, right? Looking for opportunities, even with a postage stamp. So um, what Ponzi then did was he applied for a loan, and 
uh, he asked his family in Italy to start buying up postal coupons like crazy and then send them to America. So um, one quick note on that is that this was not illegal at the time. Everything he was doing at that moment was legal. He's just buying low and selling high. It's a basic principle. Um, so what he, what he was trying to figure out, though, was how was he going to redeem these coupons for cash? Okay, so there was no way for him to monetize um, that arbitrage. So um, what he did was he, he found a list of investors, um, and he told them that he could double their investment in 90 days. So, you know, a lot of investors were paid what he promised them, but, but this is where the pyramid scheme comes into play. So he paid off earlier investors with the new investor money, right? So the people who had initially invested um, got their money back as the new investors would come in. And that was a cycle that kept happening and happening and happening. And, you know, to make it seem like it was legitimate profit, um, Ponzi opened up a company um, and this caught wind, right? And investors just started rolling in after that point. Um, so there, there, at this point, there seemed to be no intention for Ponzi to generate any legitimate profits or legal profits. So um, the book says at some point he stopped buying the coupons altogether and he kept all the money for himself. So flash forward to 1920, he made over $2.5 million, which would be equivalent to $30 million today from about 8,000 customers. Um, so he had a, a very big investment base. And um, since, since business seemed to be booming at this point, and you know, people were getting their um, ROIs or the return on investment, investors started mortgaging their homes and invested their life savings in that business. Um, and a lot of people didn't even take profits out of the business from Charles Ponzi. They would just reinvest it right back into it. Um, and you know, right here is where you can tell that Ponzi lacked some general empathy. So um, he was seeing people pour their life savings and their houses and their futures into this fake venture, and um, he let that he let that happen without any remorse, right? Any guilt. And Ponzi would go as far as offering them 50 to 100 percent ROI um, after only a few days, and um, this made the uptake even higher. And you know, for those of you that those of you that are you know keen on investment ROIs and things like that, 50, 100 percent. These things are are um, are very high numbers, right? It's a very high promise that he's giving these investors. So, you know, sure enough, right? Charles Ponzi developed a life of luxury, bought a nice mansion. Um, he would smoke cigars publicly from diamond cigar holders, um, bought a lot of gold-handed canes and would walk around town with them. So, you know, he's getting too carried away here, right? Making too much noise with his money. Um, and we see that with... Um, like, you know, even the mob movies, right? So whenever there's a big heist or there's a big score, they say don't spend your money for a little bit, right? You want to attract attention. And that's exactly what Ponzi did, though. So um, even though even though Ponzi's scheme here was uh, operating at a huge loss, he was getting more investors. Um, but every time he got more investors, he's incurring more loss because he's paying old investors with new investor money. Um, and so the bubble's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So, you know, by 1920, he was making $250,000 a day, which is about 3 million pounds. Um, so, so uh, ultimately, some, some holes started getting poked um, into his little theory here or his little scheme. So a furniture dealer um, had went to the authorities because one of Ponzi's checks had bounced, right? One of his uh, dividend checks had bounced. And this is where the investigation began. So um, after that, 
it came to light that Charles Ponzi wasn't even investing in his own company. So the Commonwealth of Massachusetts got involved at this point. And um, Charles Ponzi went ahead and said, hey, look, you know what? I am not uh, doing anything illegal here. Um, and uh, I won't accept any new customers while you conduct your investigation. And so, you know, the ball's on the guy right here, right? He's super um, uh, audacious, if you will, right? He just... Uh, he has confidence in his scheme, right? I think he thought that his confidence alone would carry him through, right? Just some some details related to his narcissism, right there. Um, so ultimately, at some point, the the Commonwealth took a look at his quote unquote books or his right as accounting, and all it was was just a rolodex of investor names, right? So he wasn't keeping track of anything or issuing invoices on anything, just a rolodex of note cards with investor contact information. So, you know, flash forward, the U.S. Post Office comes forward and says in the newspapers that there's no way this could be real because there wasn't even enough coupons in circulation for this to be true in any regard. And then, you know, going a step further, Charles Ponzi was pissed and he filed a lawsuit against the U.S. Post Office. Um, and, you know, that to me is baffling, right? You know, you know you're lying at this point, but you're gonna go up against a major corporation, knowing full well that your your whole scheme is full of shit, right? Super sociopathic at this point. So, you know, in late 1920, people stopped believing in his schemes, and they started inquiring about pulling out their money. And then Ponzi couldn't get that money soon enough to pay off all the investors, and he pretty much knew um, he was gonna be arrested. So he's lying, he's lying, he's lying, and now it's catching up to him. So ultimately, he was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud. Um, so what that amounts to is, so he lost about $20 million worth of investor money, um, but he was able to pay, you know, about, um, what was it, like 70% of it? Um, he was $7 million short. But, you know, one thing about this guy, I'll, I'll, I'll give it to him. He recouped $13 million. Um, so he wasn't stupid, right? He probably had some kind of order to it. But, um, you know, ultimately, illegal activity is going to get you caught, um, and you're going to get thrown in jail. So he also made about six major banks fail, right? And this is how we, we talk about, like, a bubble, like an economic bubble forming. So people are pulling out all of their life savings from the banks. Um, uh, they're pulling out all of their investments and putting it into this business. So the banks are um, they're not liquid anymore. And once this money is gone, those banks fail, right? Um People were receiving 30 cents on the dollar for what they invested. So, you know, 70% loss there, which is crazy. Um, so Ponzi was in jail, and he, but he, he, he got out on bail, and he fled. He, he went to Florida before sentencing. So he got down there and set up another pyramid scheme, right, called the um, Sharpon Land Syndicate. And essentially what, essentially what he did there was he sold swamp land to investors um, and promise them a big return, right? So once again, finding the opportunity in anything. And, you know, in some ways, that's a gift, right? Um, so he was caught there, sentenced to a year in prison, and he got out on an appeal. So he heads to New Orleans at this point, trying to flee the country and go back to Italy. Um, but they caught him, and he served his remaining sentence in Boston, and then returned to Italy. He tried out some more shit over there, right? He tried out some more scams in Italy um, that failed, went to jail in Italy, and he went to Brazil, and he died in 1948. So he was about 65 
that's a really sad story, right? So the guy just had a hard life, um, and the rest of his life he just spent scheming people, right? Maybe he felt that um, you know the system had done him an injustice, so he was going to do that to people, right? Um, and you know, you talk about some of the damages to the economy here, right? Uh, you know. When, when people do these schemes, it, it diverts money away from legitimate investments and legitimate um, markets and businesses. And, you know, Ponzi schemes are really hard to identify because they use a lot of technical language. They use a lot of jargon. And I have a really concrete example of that. Um, so, you know, I get approached on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook from, you know, people who are quote unquote entrepreneurs all the time. They claim to have, you know, million dollar businesses and things like that. Um, so, uh, you know, a couple once approached me on LinkedIn um, and um, they said, you know, are you interested in mentorship or side income? And, you know, of course, right? That all sounds good. Um, so I said, hey, look, you know, yeah, I'm definitely interested. You know, I have a good job, but, you know, always good to diversify yourself, um, hedge your risk. So um, they meet up with me, right? We meet up at like a, a Panera or a coffee shop and we just start talking. They gave me a book to read. You know, I read the book. Um, it was called like Business of the 21st Century um, by this like a uh, real estate tycoon, like some, some uh, Asian guy, right? I forget his name. Um, so what's interesting about that book, right? Not to get too deep into the details here is that the guy, the author is telling you all about a different way to make money, like, you know, automation and things like that. But he made all his money as a real estate tycoon, right? So it's like, how can you talk about this when you didn't even make your money from that, right? So anyway, um, so this this couple, right, that approached me, they're like, they would host these sessions downtown at the Ritz-Carlton, right? Make it appear like they're really wealthy and things like that. Um, and so when when you would ask the other people at these meetings if the system worked they would be super enthusiastic about it right like, yes you know it works um i'm able to do so much i feel so good about my life i'm in control finally and so when you ask them um like how much money have you made in the past two years right since you started they would be like hey it's not about the money it's about financial freedom and i'm like well dude like financial freedom has everything to do with money and wealth so i don't know so, you know, I go forward with this couple and like, you know, we're talking, we're talking, we're talking, we're, you know, they're making me read books. I'm checking it. I'm checking it off with them. And I just want to see what their thing was all about. Right. So um, I'm going through these loops. I'm meeting with people. I'm talking to people. All good. You know, all good things. I was reading a lot. You know, I was networking. Um, so they, quote unquote, accepted me into their partnership and their mentorship. Um, so what that meant was. You know, I had to sign up for a subscription to receive like all of my groceries and my products, my hair care products or my, you know, toiletries um, through this website. Right. And they were all overpriced. None of the normal brands I used. Um, the membership was like seventy five dollars a month. I had to sign up for this like um, platform that was also another like 30, 40 bucks a month. Um, and, you know, I would only make money once um, I signed other people up. Right. Um, and that was kind of weird, too. And um, so but like one thing, one thing that kind of, um, you know, was a nail in the coffin for me saying I'm done with this. You know, I think you guys are like kind of scheming here or scamming me. So, um, you know, the, we're at one of these events and they're like kind of being like the keynote speaker. Right. And they're like um, starting to talk about how much money they have. Right. So one guy goes, um, you know, I like to be I like to have a lot of money. I like to be cash heavy. He goes, I have $100,000 in my bank account at all times. And I go, okay, you know, I heard that, cool. Um, so after the after he's done, I go, hey, can I see? 
and he, uh, can I see you, you, you said like you have a hundred thousand dollars in your bank account at all times. You want to show me? And, um, he goes, Oh, Oh, you know, actually, you know, I, I'll, t I gotta do this right now. And then it got really vague. Right. Um, and he, you know, these people claim that they're millionaires, right? I'm like, can you show me anything, anything that, um, uh, shows me that you're a millionaire, right? Or how about this? How about this? How about if you're so confident in your system, how about you front all the costs for it, right? You say, I'll pay for your membership. I'll pay for this. I'll pay for your travel to go there. And then I'll be like, well, as soon as I get a million dollars, I'll give you that money back, man. I'll give you all that maybe plus more, right? And they weren't willing to do that either, right? So, so um, not to get too windy on this path here, but I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast with Navil Ravikant, who's a smart dude, right? Um, extremely intellectual. Um, he said one thing, he goes, if it actually works, you, you should be able to show it for free. And I, I totally understand that, right? Um, you should be able to show someone for free that it does work, or you should be able to be as transparent with the details. Um, if, if you truly believe that it works and in fact it does, right? So, um, yeah. Right, you got to be careful with the pyramid schemes, but they exist, right? And and these days they're going to coerce people um, into like you know side income and things like that. And it sounds really good, financial freedom, all that stuff. But be wary, right? Go forward with caution. So anyway, um, enough on that one. So um, that was uh, Charles Ponzi um, in relation to the Ponzi scheme. Um, so that's it for that story. But we got one more story for today, and that's going to be the Bhopal disaster. Um, that occurred in Madhya Pradesh, India, um, in 1984. So, um, this is more of a, like corporate negligence, I'd say, than maybe a white collar crime, but they were charged, so I guess it can be classified in that way. So, um, just just uh, kind of like making an illustration for you. So, in December 1984, there was 40 tons of um, methyl isocyanate um, leaked from a pesticide plant that was owned by a U.S. firm called United Carbine Corporation, UCC. So um, half a million people um, in this village or this little town um, were exposed to that gas. So there was a, 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 a very toxic cloud that kind of took over the city. Um, and there's no exact number of people who died um, in that calamity, but it was said that thousands of people had died instantly right thousands of people died on contact from being exposed to this gas so um thousands more were left with continuous um permanent debilitating disabilities um and at the time right in 1984 this was the worst industrial accident um in all of history so you know just kind of like level setting with you guys there so you know start with a little bit of the backstory so this plant was built in 1969 um, and it was built to produce this pesticide called Seven, S-E-V-I-N. Um, and that was used widely throughout Asia for, you know, pest control and things like that. Um, and another very important detail is that the Indian government had about 49% stake in this operation, right? So just, you know, painting the picture there. So there was also early signs of some negligence, okay? So they chose this place called Bhopal because it had a really good transportation structure, okay? So... You know, you're dealing with potentially harmful chemicals, um, you, you're exporting uh, and things like that. It's going to be good to be in a, in a very specific location that's suited for this type of activity. Um, and the distribution channels are going to mean a lot. So 
you know, this this plant, however, it was was um, was zoned and built for light industrial use, and was really not capable of dealing with an industry that had potential hazards like this one. So I'm sure someone up top was like, hey, you know, this is cool, all good, right? Um, it won't matter. It's direct negligence right there. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of production itself, they were only supposed to produce pesticides, okay? And they were supposed to get the chemical mixture from a third party. But, you know, to cut cost, they produced those chemicals in-house, which is a very dangerous process. Um, and once again, some negligence there didn't seem like they understood the risk. Um, so, and we see this a lot with American corporations, but this plant was utilized um, and utilized safety equipment um, pr and protocols that were very far below the standards that were maintained in, in the U.S. So, you know, we see that in a lot of outsourced scenarios where, you know, products that are made in China, for example, um, are, are, are made in plants where there's terrible working conditions um, and the, the workers are severely underpaid. So, you know, it seems like India was aware of these issues, um, but they kind of feared that economic impact of closing down a plant um, of that size. And like I said, they had a huge stake in that operation and they didn't want to see it fail. So, um, you know, flash forward to the day um, of the event. So that's December 2nd through 3rd of 1984. So there was a faulty valve situation that occurred, and we'll get into that in a minute. But um, so once the, once the gas leak occurred, um, a strong wind blew it through the city, and it stuck to the ground. It went through the city, um, and um, as people inhaled it, their throats and eyes burned, and people died terrible deaths, foaming at the mouth um, and vomiting uncontrollably. Um, the, the chief minister of Madhya Pradesh was really um, was knocked right for fleeing the city, and he left his residence just to kind of fend for themselves. So we go forward to the post-incident um, investigation. So the CEO of UCC flew out from America um, to India with a technical team to, to help manage the chaos. And when he did arrive, he was placed under house arrest. And, you know, he had to take some responsibility. So they didn't want him, you know, intervening in the investigation in case he tried to cover something up. So they put together a task force to investigate. And um, they... Um, delivered medical supplies to the area to try to, you know, put a band-aid on this whole situation. So when that task force got there, um, they they rolled into a very horrific scene. So the streets were filled with dead, decaying bodies and dead animals. Um, and I can imagine that being super traumatizing to witness. Um, so they then, they release the CEO on the condition that he comes back to India for trial. And what I think the biggest piece of bullshit in this whole story is that the UCC um, at first gave $120,000 for relief for the situation. So, you know, this was in 1984, so $120,000 probably went further, but $120,000 is nothing in comparison to the lives of thousands of people. So that was some, I don't know who came up with that figure. So I think they got a lot of flag for that. So, you know, a year or two later, um, that fund increased to about $7 million. Still not enough, but, you know, more substantial. So this investigation lasts for years and years and years, um, even till recently, to be honest. So um, the, the actual situation that happened was that a ton, so one ton of water 
that was meant for like cleaning pipes in the in the factory and things like that in the lab. It was mixed with 40 tons of methyl isocyanate and that caused a chemical reaction and that forced that valve to open and let the gas escape. So investigators say that it was employee sabotage um, that, that caused this um, and the UCC was forced to pay $470 million in damages at that point. But people still feel, um, and I agree, that uh, UCC significantly underestimated the long-term effects of this disaster, right? So in 2001, right, uh, 20 years after the, uh, the event happened, they built a hospital to treat victims. 20 years later. Um, and 20 years, 20 years later, they established a health insurance fund to cover the costs, the medical costs of 100,000 people right i'm gonna reiterate 20 years later so there's chronically ill survivors that are still experiencing negative affliction 20 years later and now in 2010 almost 30 years later seven former execs of ucc who were all indian nationals by the way were convicted of causing death by negligence and another kicker is that they only had to pay two thousand dollars each and they served two years in prison each right um, and we talk about the ongoing issues there was a large number of children um, born after the disaster that suffered severe mental and physical deformities and um, you know I'm not sure it's the correlation but it, it has to be correlated in some way so you know some real examples of corporate negligence here um, what people will do to cut costs um, raise profit and things like that at the cost um, of lives right? We see that um, all over the world. But, um, you know, that's all I had for you guys today, right? So short on the white collar crimes here. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying the podcast. Feel free to leave me any comments. And remember, only positivity. Thanks, guys.